new customers never retain at the same rate as your loyal customers. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 80, and today's guest is Bill Bass. Bill has had multiple careers. He served in the military, he started his own companies, and he's worked in marketing for a number of different consumer brands from Land's End to his current company, Full Beauty Brands. Bill is analytical, practical, and a get-things-done type of guy, so I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation. Before we get started, though, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Bill Bass. Bill is the Chief Marketing Officer of Full Beauty Brands. He joined them in 2019 to oversee the marketing, e-commerce, and information technology teams. Prior to joining Full Beauty, Bill served as co-president of Orchard Brands, a $1 billion collection of catalog companies, president of Charming Shops Direct, general manager of Sears Direct, senior vice president of Land's End, group research director at Forrester Research, and Bill was also a co-founder of Boston.com, the Boston Globe's internet company. He's also co-founded Fair Indigo, a socially conscious apparel brand, and Black Wolf Group, which owns and manages local moving companies and home healthcare businesses. Bill has served on the board of directors of Tractor Supply Company and Ascendant, as well as serving on the boards of industry organization shop.org and the Direct Marketing Association. Before his business career, Bill had another career. He was a, an Army paratrooper and helicopter gunship instructor pilot. Thank you for your service, Bill, and welcome to the show. No, thank you, Mark. Yeah, I have a hard time holding a job, it sounds like, or I'm old. Actually, it's the two of them combined. Once <laughs> you've been around a long time and you can't hold a job, you end up with a list of list of positions you've held. It's like I, I think if uh, you were interviewing me for this show, it would be exactly the same way. Maybe a few more thrown in there, a bunch of consulting, you know, as well. But uh, you know, I think we are peers uh, of of age <laughs> in this industry. Um, so, uh, but anyway, nice to see you again. It's been a long time. Uh, I appreciate uh, you uh, helping out with the show. We like to get started on the show kind of with this first story. You know, you've had, um, you know, multiple professional careers in the in the military and then in business. So is there anything kind of you know, where you grew up, family life that might have suggested you'd go into the military and then have the kind of a business career that you've had? Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, right next to the Smoky Mountains. And uh, my parents were both uh, college professors at the University of Tennessee. They were very academically focused, and I was less so. <laughs> and so, so in a in a fit of somewhat rebellion, I think uh, I joined the army when I was seventeen. Uh, so right when I graduated high school, I joined the army. And the primary reason I joined the army was I wanted to uh, pay my own way through college. 
I didn't want to have my parents pay for college and I would have felt obligated to, you know, do well. Whereas if I paid my own way through college and I did something that got me kicked out, it's like, hey, it's it's my money and I, you know, I'm, I'm the one wasting my money. Uh, so uh, so the army sent me off to college. And, and really, at the time, I wasn't good with authority. And so all my friends were like going, you're, you're crazy to go in the army. Um, but I, it was really the only way that I could pay for for college on my own. And so I planned on getting into the army and doing my four years that I owed him for paying for college and then getting out. And I got in the army and I had a, I had great bosses. I had great jobs. Uh, I loved it. And the army, it's interesting. If you go, if you go to units that go get bad guys, they're pretty good about leaving you alone. <laughs> and they, they, they don't mess with you. And uh, it's uh, so I had I had a great time in the army, and and I ended up staying in for active duty for six and a half years, and and I would I would still be in except my wife started to get concerned about some of the jobs that I had. In the stuff that I was doing, there's this inverse correlation that happens between how much fun the job is and how much wives hate it. And the more fun the job is, the more the wives hate it, just because fun equals being gone danger. a lot and danger and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so I got out, but yeah, I, I miss the army every single day. It's the best job I ever had. Oh, that's interesting. And like I said, thank you for your service. Uh, appreciate uh, all the people like you that are, are doing for our country. One of the things that, you know, it's kind of the thread through a lot of the businesses that you've uh, been in, and we'll go back to boston.com in a second. Um, you know, you seem to come into a lot of brands that, you know, are struggling a bit. And, you know, when you get yourself involved in a business like that, what's, do you have a playbook that you've established because you've done this a few times? We have a playbook now that really started with Charming Shops. So I went to Charming Shops in 2009, which was right after the uh, the economy cratered. And at that time, Charming Shops uh, was a store-based company, uh, had 2,000 stores spread across three brands, uh, Lane Bryant, Catherine's, and, and uh, Fashion Bug. And, you know, that was an interesting, uh, in 2008, when the uh, banking crisis happened, Lehman Brothers went under and all the rest of that happened, there was, uh, uh, Charming Shops had had $2 billion in sales, and their market cap was like $60 million dollars. I was I was like going like I could probably walk up and down my street and you know with a hat in my hand and raise that much money for this. So there was a, a real uh, concern going on with charming shops um, on whether it would stay uh, whether it would go bankrupt or stay around. And they had a uh, activist investor come in and do you know what activist investors do. So he had a proxy fight and the he ended up putting his people on the board uh, and the CEO got fired and a whole bunch of stuff. So there was just a lot of turmoil turmoil going on. Typically, what I've found when you go into a lot of these companies, <laughs> companies get into trouble. And this is almost, it's happened. It's the same movie. And it keeps amazing me that, that uh, people come in, typically private equity firms, people coming out of business school, and they think they're smart. And they go, hey, you need a new customer. You know, the current customer you have is too old, too not wealthy enough, you know, whatever. We need to reposition you. And they try and reposition the brand. And all that they do is they piss off their current customers who like the products that they have. And then they come out with new products, but the customer that they're trying to appeal to doesn't exist yet. And, you know, they're not going to go shop at this company 
just because it's new product, because there's still there's this brand image around it that, that it's servicing a different customer. So there's there's this grass is always greener kind of mentality that comes in. It says, wow, you know, life would be easier if we just had a different customer. And so they go after a different customer and, and, and it never works. And then there's math behind it. You know, Mark, you've done this a long time, but uh, new customers never retain at the same rate as your loyal customers. So you you take off your loyal customers and then you try and replace them with new customers, but new customers are never as good. E even, even if you did a one-for-one -one swap, you know, new customers kind of, my rule of thumb is they perform at about half the level. You get about half the lifetime value out of new customers that you're getting out of, uh, out of loyal customers. Companies, you know, they, they don't do a good job of taking care of the customers that they have and they get into trouble. And so then we come in and we go, hey, how about we take care of the, how about we focus on the customers and do the stuff that we're good at? It's it's not rocket science, but it's it's just amazing to me that these people, I see this movie over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, and, and I think your experience at, at Full Beauty and at Orchard, you know, you, you've got these companies that are we'll call them catalog. And, and for those, uh, this is a podcast, they can't see me using the air, air quotes, but you know, these are, you know, catalog centric companies where customers have now, you know, shifted to ordering online. And you know, so talk a little bit about how, you know, you come into a business and everybody wants to get digital. You know, they want to reduce their reliance on paper. And I get that, but you know, that paper is still important, right? Yeah, uh, very important. Um, although it's getting more expensive, so <laughs> try and make it less important uh, as you can. Yeah, it's been an interesting. Uh, so I started my uh, when I got into the uh, into business when I left the army and, and went back to uh, graduate school and learned business and then went into the business world. I started off in the newspaper business. I ended up at the Boston Globe. And launched a website called Boston.com, which we launched in October of 1995, which was the exact same month that Jeff Bezos launched Amazon. Um, and we were one of the very first newspapers to go on. Uh, I, I had the, uh, the the really interesting experience of helping design the very first banner ads. Um, so everybody, Yahoo was uh, up at that time, and they had their little sizes that they were having banner ads, and we were doing banner ads, and you. And uh, a, a couple of other places were doing banner ads. And we all got together and said, hey, we should come up with a common size so that the advertiser, you know, kind of like the 15 second TV commercial or the 30 second TV commercial, you know, let's come up with a standardized size. So we came up, okay, it'll be this many pixels wide and this many pixels deep. And we'll have three or four different options so people could do different, different things. It quickly became clear to me that the internet was going to be nothing but bad news. For newspapers <laughs> classified advertising is how newspapers make all their money and doing job searches and things like that are easier to do online than they are through print and so uh i i, I left the newspaper industry and went off to forrester research and wrote a bunch of reports about how the newspaper industry was going to crater because the internet was was going to you know just shake up the business model so the newspaper industry saw me as, as something of a I don't know if a trader is the right word, but probably it's pretty close. Um, and I was I was kind of trashing their trashing their business model. But um, I had a customer, I had a client at Forrester who was on the board of Lands End, and uh, he asked me to take a look at Lands End. Lands End was looking for somebody to come run their internet business, 
and it is a favorite hymn I went out and looked, not planning on leaving Forrester because I, I loved working with Forrester. I, I had really great people I was working with. But I got out there and I was going, ooh, hey, the internet is nothing but good news for catalog companies because you can reach your customer. And it's not so much people get into the, say, we're going to swap out print for digital, but it's really the combination of the two. And you do each one for what it's good at. Something that's never worked very well is just taking a print catalog and digitizing it and sending it through email to the customer. Every time we've done that, its performance is not nearly as good as a is an email that's like personalized and geared to towards that customer. Your your creative people hate hearing that because they put all their heart, soul, and effort into the catalog, and they want this to be like, oh, now you can see it on on a screen. But it's like people don't want to see a catalog on a screen. They want to, you know, it's it's a it's a new medium, right? It's the same way you don't want to listen to watch a radio show on television, except. ESPN's done a pretty good job of, of making some pretty interesting radio shows and putting them on TV. So the internet has come along and there's things that it's good that it's good at, that it's better at than print. There's things that print is better at. The thing that you want to try and do is figure out, uh, it's like an orchestra. And, you know, you, you, your tubas can't play the flute part. Um, and the flutes can't play the tuba part. So each one does what it does well. And you end up having some pretty nice sound and music. Uh, and, and that's what I've always tried to do in my career. And people get, I call them bright, shiny object syndrome. It's like there's something that comes in uh, the metaverse. We need to be selling in the metaverse. Otherwise, we're going to be left behind. 20 years ago, there was this thing called Second Life. And Second Life came out and it was the metaverse. It was like the very first metaverse. And I had all these companies going, oh, we got to set up. We're going to be left behind because, you know, they're building stores in, the, in Second Life. And if you're not selling in Second Life, you're going to be left behind because it recreates the physical store experience. I can go wander. I have an avatar and I could go wander around, look at things on the rack. And I was going, this is the dumbest thing I ever seen. I go, it's a bad experience trying to recreate a store experience. Why don't you just go to the store? You know, there's a lot of things in the in in technology, you know, that people get enamored with that are really distractions. And I've always found that if you just kind of focus on, I mean, what do people want? They want to have uh, a lot of information about the product so that they can make a good decision. They want to have it so that it's easy to shop and I don't got to uh, click through a bunch of steps. I had one, this is like a major advertising agency. Uh, this is when I was at Charming Shops. They were wanting to work with Lane Bryant and they showed up and they said, hey, you need to move your checkout button on your website. I go, well, this is where everybody puts their checkout button. And they go, I know that's the problem. You're the same as everybody else. You need to hide it on the page because that'll then make take longer for people to find it. And you'll, your engagement scores will go up because people will spend longer on your pages. And I just remember going, you are an absolute moron. And, and but companies are listening to you with this kind of crazy, you're not thinking about the customer experience. You know, you're thinking about, hey, oh, there's all this digital stuff and I'm going to talk mumbo jumbo to companies. That's where companies get run and start running off the rails. You mentioned uh, something that I talk about on the show a lot, uh, shiny object syndrome. So, you know, you've got, I, I'm sure you you get hundreds of uh, emails about all kinds of technology and things. So what is your barometer? You know, you talk a little bit about customer experience. You want the customer to get through your site quickly. Is it around 
metrics that you want to focus on? Is it around the payback uh, that it would take you to uh, implement and and get back? What what are the things that you think about as to say, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. We're going to take a look at it. Let me answer that two ways. So way one, uh, we try not to be opinion driven. We try to be data driven. We we will do everything we can to figure out how to, to do an A-B test. So we can actually sit there and say, hey, look, this is a real A-B test. And if we do this, these metrics change in this way. So we, we'll look at metrics, things like revenue per visit, margin per visit. We try and pick holistic metrics rather than the subcomponents like average order value or conversion rate. We, you know, if you look at revenue per visit, it's kind of, you know, conversion rate times average order, you know, it, it captures all of the different uh, subcomponents. So we try and take a kind of macro level uh, metrics, and then we like to do A-B tests and then just compare and see how customers react. Because we all have a bunch of opinions on what we think the customer is going to do, but, you know, you know, we don't see. Now, if you can't do, now, how do you get into the where we're willing to take the time to do an A-B test because that's an investment of time, effort, and energy. And you got to prioritize what you're going to look at. And we always have, there's like a hundred things we want to try out and we got time to do like maybe five or 10. So how do you sort down to that five or 10? I got, I was lucky because I got involved in this right when the internet was getting started. So there was just a handful of people working on the internet. We all knew each other. And so even if we were competitors, uh, Rich Last, who was at JCPenney when I was at Sears, uh, he was a great guy. We always shared ideas. Uh, it, it, you know, the Sears, the pennies people hated each other, but we were the, you know, the e-com guys. And we kind of had more battles with our internal people than we had with each other, right? So we were we would always share ideas on, on how to make the, our businesses better. I've always tried to maintain fairly close relationships with people who have jobs like mine, and there are people that I know and trust who have a, a similar view on, on, hey, let's figure out, let's separate hype from reality. Um, and, you know, and you get people, I got people that buy into the hype, either buy into the hype or they like to get into the IT people. People will do this sometimes. They, they, they throw out buzzwords to make other people feel like they don't. You have to keep hiring me because I'm the only one that understands these buzzwords. Um, and so I, uh, I have a handful of people, more and more than a handful, that I'll just say, hey, what do you see out there? We're thinking about doing this. Have you looked at this? Did you try this? And once you kind of get that kitchen cabinet of people that you can run ideas by, that's how I prioritize stuff. That's uh, that's good. It's certainly one of the things that I know has been a challenge. And and you're right. You know, you have a hundred things you want to do, but only five that you can do. And you know, I'm sure you've dealt with this. You know, every vendor that comes calling, um, you know, when you talk about implementation, and in a lot of cases, you have to fully implement before you can really do a an MVP. And it takes a lot of time to do that. And every vendor is saying, "Geez, it's two lines of code," and in fact, it you know, it takes a lot more time than that. So you need to be, have discrimination uh, about what you do. So that, that's, uh, that's good. I can tell you one thing that, that has helped me more than I ever thought it would. When I was at Forrester, so this is late nineties, I would talk to 10 vendors a day. They'd be pitching their stuff. It was like how to winnow out the good from the bad vendors boot camp, like every, every day. And so I spent a few years doing that. And now I can pretty much within five minutes tell you whether a vendor is worth listening to or not, 
just with the initial thing, just because, you know, it's pattern recognition. You know, they talk about, you know, value in chess and stuff like that. You, know, you can see that if once you've played a bunch of times, you develop pattern recognition and you say, oh, OK, I've seen this happen. You know, and the same thing with vendors. It's like pattern recognition. You do it a bunch of times. And yeah, so I would say anybody that has a chance to go to a Gartner or Forrester or any of those places where you're just you're just talking to a bajillion vendors all the time. That's a pretty good way to build up pattern recognition. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. You've had a few situations in your career where the company that you were working for was acquired. As the person who was in the business that was acquired, how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, how do you counsel people? Geez, you've had a job, you like the job, and now you're bought. Things are going to change. H how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a. <laughs> I will go to my grave always feeling bad that we sold Lanzen to Sears because uh, Lanzen had a very. Uh, it was one of the one of the best or the best company I've ever worked with. It's the only company I've worked at where people genuinely cared about the customer. Uh, that, that was the Trump card. Every company says that, but it, it, that's not, you know, it's like, oh, but our margins will be better if we do this, that, or the other, you know, it's like, lands in, it really was about the customer. And so then we sold the company to Sears and what ends up happening when, when a company gets sold, you lose control of your destiny and the buying company, even if they say they're going to leave you alone, I don't, there's, there's like a gravitational pull that just keeps that from actually happening. So you get caught up in the gravitational pull of the big company and it's going to change things. But, you know, that's life. You know, I, I wish I was still, you know, 35. <laughs> I'm 60 now. <laughs> and you can sit there and pine for not being 35 or you can sit there and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be the best 60-year-old I can be. And, and that's good. That's what it is. And so um, same thing, if your company gets bought, you know, you, you try and do what you can to keep the culture and the stuff that you have. But at the end of the day, the owners of the company own the company. And if you want to have something different, start your own company. That's what I did. I mean, after after I left Sears, I started my own company. And that's the best because you sit there and you go, OK, <laughs> we have our own company and we have the culture that we want and we're not selling to anybody else. And yeah, so let's dig into that. Uh, you know, I did want to talk about that. So, what company did you start? So we got so after we sold Lands End to Sears, I kept my job at Lands End, but I picked up running uh, Sears Direct. That's actually when I first ran into uh, at that time uh, Red Cats because they were doing our Sears catalogs. Yeah, so we, we outsourced some of our catalogs to to Red Cats. Red Cats became Full Beauty, which is where I am now. And uh, so then I was running a chunk of Sears, and then we sold Sears to Kmart. And Eddie Lampert, who was our primary shareholder at Sears, but Sears was a public company, he'd, he'd bought Kmart and he merged these two together. And I, I, I didn't want to work in that kind of environment going forward. And so the ex-CFO of Land's End, who I'd gotten to know when we were on the executive committee at Land's End together, but we got together and said, hey, let's start a company. And I said, there's, there's two options. I go, one, we can start like a, another Land's End. Or... I was on the advisory board of a company called Two Men in a Truck, 
which is a, a moving company. And I said, you know, and, and there's this other company, Two Men in a Truck, that I've really become enamored with, and we could open up Two Men in Truck franchises. And uh, my business partner, Don Hughes, he goes, why do we have to choose? Let's do both. So this is 2005. It seemed like genius at the time. So we started Fair Indigo, which is a clothing company um, with a bunch of X-Lands in people. And then we also opened up uh, our first uh, Two Men in a Truck franchise. And everything was like hunky-dory until 2008. So like first three years, business was great. And then 2008, we had the, uh, the the banking crisis. The banks pulled all our loans. And that's why I had to go back to work. Both of us went back to work. Uh, I went back to work at uh, Charming Shops. And Don went to work at uh, uh, Colony Brands. It, and we did that because we had to fund the businesses now out of our own pocket. We couldn't have, there were no more bank loans to be had. And so... We, uh, we kept the businesses going, but that's how we got started with our moving businesses and our uh, clothing company. And they're still going, you know, so it's 20, 20 years later, we're still cranking along with us. So we've got about 500 employees. Wow. So that was, uh, you guys were starting the uh, side hustle. Yeah. <laughs> well, we planned on it being the main hustle <laughs> and, and then it, it became the side hustle. One of the things about um, you know some consistency across some of the businesses that you've been in multi-brand businesses, um, and I've been in a number of them as well. Hanover Direct over the years, uh, to your point about uh, Red Cats, which was the is the predecessor of of Full Beauty Brands. There's seemingly this ongoing battle of being a centralized or decentralized kind of an organization. How do you think about that for multi-brand businesses? Yeah, and so the the what you're trying to do is pick up the Goldilocks. There's there's things to centralize and there's things to decentralize. I, 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 and you run in the same thing for like international businesses. What do you localize and what do you not localize? Uh, I used to run the uh, international business at Lands End, and and the problem that you run into it's a little bit like bonus programs. There, there's no one right answer, and every answer has pluses and minuses to it. So you you do something for a while until you get tired of the minuses, and then you switch to something else, and and you fix those minuses, but you get new minuses, and you do that for a while. So it's like a pendulum, you know, it kind of swings. Okay, let's centralize more stuff. Oh, we, we don't like that answer. Let's decentralize more stuff. And so the the analogy I use, it's like a bowl, an upside down bowl, and you're trying to balance a marble on the top of it, and the marble keeps wanting to fall over to the, to the side. Um, so you, it wants to fall over to you know more decentralization or less decentralization, more centralization. But the optimum point is really in the middle. But the middle is not a natural resting point. It takes active work to keep it in the middle because otherwise you'll over-centralize or over-decentralize. And so what we try and do is you try, I mean, there are obvious ones. You centralize finance. You centralize uh, uh, shipping. Um, your distribution center. But then you'll get some brand that goes, well, I think we should have different sh shipping policies. We think we should ship, you know, one day shipping because Amazon's doing it. And your other brands are going, you crazy? That's going to put you out of business, right? And so, so you'll have this tension that goes on where people, another analogy I use, it's like when you're, in, when you're your own brand, a loan brand, you're in a house and you can design the house however you want. You can landscape the yard however you want, whatever. When you're in a multi-brand system, you're in a condo. And, you know, they're condo rules. 
and you can't play your music as loud as you wanted to and you can't smoke pot out on the balcony <laughs> and you can't you know there's there's these kind of rules and you just you're making a trade off by accepting certain uh, restrictions of some things that you can do when you're your own independent brand uh, but in, in return, there should be a payoff that you get. You know, you're, you know, it's cheaper to insure the condo than it was your individual house. Or, you know, in the case of how we've always done it in our multi-brand businesses is we work really hard to share customers across the brands. And this is the kind of Kevin Hillstrom, you know, no cost, low cost customer acquisition uh, thing. And, and it's worked really well uh, because uh, advertising costs for a direct marketing company will be somewhere in the 25 to 30 percent of sales range. So if I can get a customer that that one of our brands, say Woman Within, got to the website by sending catalogs or sending emails out and they get to the website and then they click over to Swimsuits for All, that new Swimsuits for All customer it was zero cost for swimsuits to for all to get that customer. And that's been the, you know, for all the companies that we've been at when we were at uh, uh, Charming Shops, Orchard Brands, uh, now Full Beauty, the ability to have the, a common set of customers across these brands so that the brands have some affinity in, in the customers between them and then being able to get the customer to cross shop, that's really been the, the secret sauce that's made the economic model work so well. One of the things when I talk to, to companies, you know, about cost of acquisition, where they spend their dollars, so many businesses don't know quite where to spend the next dollar of advertising. How do you help your brands think about that? In full beauty. Uh, so our CEO here is a completely rational economic player. So he is uh, all about, look, if, if we get a return on the dollar, we're going to spend it. So we don't really have budgets. I don't have a, I don't have an, a marketing budget uh, that I'm sitting there trying to say, okay, I'm going to carve up my pie and who gets the bigger slice and my slice goes to the person that, you know, sque the squeakiest wheel or any of that stuff. We don't, we don't do any of that here. We sit there and we say, okay, we know what our marginal cost of customer acquisition is. We know what our marginal payback of customer acquisition. And we set it up so that uh, that last customer is going to make us money. And the customer after them will lose money. So we set up the uh, ROAS targets based upon uh, our, our new customers coming in, how much, what their lifetime value is by channel. Um, we were talking earlier about Dan Hatola, and uh, Dan Hatola has uh, down to, okay, this type of social media acquisition channel delivers this many new customers. And so we're willing to spend this much into it. So each of our channels, marketing channels, has a ROAS target that takes into account what that marginal customer, when we get down to that zero return on the very last customer. And that's how we do it. And then we just constantly are making sure that we're dialing stuff at the individual channel level to make that row as. And then whatever that adds up to, that's what goes to finance. Finance guys hate it because they like sitting there saying, well, how much money are you going to spend next year? 
And you go, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's going to depend. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, again, my background is, you know, to some degree similar to yours, having worked in, you know, a lot of, you know, catalog businesses and working in one where there are stores involved that there's also another component of where to spend, you know, the dollars. There's a lot of businesses that still force the budget. I, I like to, you know, talk about the fact um, you know, businesses were only compelled to spend what they had in their pocket. You know, you can only can spend a thousand dollars because that's what they gave you, even though you can confidently spend three thousand um, and that incremental two thousand is going to make you money. There's a lot of businesses that don't just operate that way. So and there's always a trade off, too, between, um, you know, immediate gratification versus delayed. Yeah, how much how much of your money are you going to buy beans and plant the field versus how much are you going to use to pay bonuses to your employees? You know, there's a lot of things that you're trying to figure out the investment. Uh, we try to sit there and say, look, this is our investment time horizon. It has to pay back within this time horizon. And we'll futz around with the time horizon, you know, depending upon how confident we are, you know, how much we want to invest and stuff like that. But once we come up with the time horizon that we're willing to do, and for us, it'll be kind of like a two to three years, we feel like we can fairly confidently predict what the return is going to be on a customer over the next two to three years. You start getting out to like true lifetime values, you know, 10 years, 20 years and stuff like that. It becomes very sensitive to interest rates and, and all the rest of that. So we try and take as much of the uncertainty out as we can. And, uh, and then once that's in place, that's the scoreboard. We know what we're acting, you know, acting against the board or boards bought into that. And then we go execute. See, folks, uh, on the Marketing Playbook podcast, we bring you new terminology all the time. Bill brought us the word futz. Uh, so that's a very technical term of uh, how you massage numbers to get you the answer that uh, that you're looking for. Right, Bill? <laughs> Let's talk um, just quickly about you know some of the pain points that exist today for your business, which is a combination of paper and a combination of digital. Lots of headwinds in the space. What are the ones that you're most focused on? The whole paper world, you know, it's expensive to chop down trees, turn them into paper, print things on them, give them to delivery things and get them out to, you know, hundreds of millions of customers. So we spend, we do, I don't know, something like 300 million catalogs a year or something like that. So, I mean, we're, we, we, we got a lot of catalogs that went out. Actually, it might be 400 million catalogs a year. I don't know. Um, we keep adding brands. And so every time we add a brand, we, we get the crack out new catalogs. And so there's been a lot of pressure in the uh, in the in the print industry. You know, the post office has had challenges for a long time. It's actually, I think, starting to get its act together. But the problem is they're getting their act together by raising some of our rates, which is I kind of wish they were getting their act together. <laughs> we're still kind of underpricing, underpricing some of their deliveries. And then you've had, uh, you know, the consolidation of the printers. You know, you kind of got quad graphics um, out there as kind of the lone big player now. You had uh, LSC, which used to be Donnelly, but they've gone through, you know, kind of serial bankruptcy kind of issues. You know, that's a tough business, uh, printing. Things are only going to keep going up in cost for catalogs. And so you just have to then adjust what you're doing. But we're saying it's not just catalogs. 
we've had Costco up in uh, digital marketing, right? So it used to be, I remember when Google first came out as the greatest thing ever because it was an auction, but you didn't have a lot of people bidding against you. And then all of a sudden everybody starts coming in and bidding against you and our costs were going up. People go, oh, we can't afford this. And you're going, well, you have to afford it because it's that's the new paradigm. And we just got to figure out how do we optimize what we're doing with Google and find other ways now to, to reach our customers. But we're not going to get, you know, this kind of, you're looking for pricing discrepancies where things are underpriced, but that's just business. Over time, people get smart and they, those prices adjust. And in those early days, uh, product listing ads, uh, you know, were free. You know, shopping was was free for a long time until they started to realize that that was really where the the main driver on Google was going to be. And product listing ads have been a great deal for us. It, it's been interesting, and you still get in a company. You know, the merchants go, oh, "This is the product I want to push." And you go, well, no, we just give Google all of our products and then they decide which ones the customers want. And that's what they show them because Google, you know, they only get paid if somebody clicks on the ad, right? And so there's this uh, really interesting tension and it's going to continue for a while between how much do you give over to the AI algorithm driven stuff versus your creative people and your merchants kind of, no, 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 we need to lead the customer to what they want, they, they should want to buy. And, and that's, a, that's a tension that happens in every company I've been in. And it's, it's one uh, that's happening you know, literally right now. We started doing a bunch of stuff with the uh, generative AI um, where we're having product copy and, and actually some of the uh, um, graphics and stuff like that now starting to be generated by by computer as opposed to our creative people and our, that we love, but you know, it's just hard to, hard to compete against something that I can write a year's worth of subject lines for emails and have five different variations for each one that I can then, you know, start in the morning and I'll send two or three different versions of the email, depending upon the subject line and then pick whichever one wins and go to that. Well, that's a lot of work coming up with all the subject lines. A year's worth of those using generative AI costs me 15 bucks. Whereas, you know, I'm talking about a whole stable full of, of creative people. There's going to be a lot of change happening in that space too. The next version of newspapers yes. going away, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, we're down to the uh, end of the show, Bill. I appreciate uh, all the, all the uh, information that you shared. We do this two-minute drill, seven questions, one word answer. Are you ready? <laughs> Fire away. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? E-Toys, which died early in the, in the uh, internet days, but those guys were just creative as all heck. So I, I, I admired them. Favorite app on your phone? It's like a boggle word app uh, where I can play. It, it takes two minutes. So I, I can always have like a little two minute burst of <laughs> time wasting. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Made in, which is cookware. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were. Being skinny. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard that one. So. <laughs> Charitable organization that you're passionate about. We talked about a company that started called Fair Indigo. We have a foundation that uh, is attached to that. I, when I came out of the Army, I got a degree in uh, education policy, and I went to work for the U.S. Department of Education. 
And so I've been involved in education the rest of my life, I've been on school boards. And, and uh, so when we started Fair Indigo, that was about making sure that people in, in the countries where we make our clothes are paid fairly. And we have an education foundation set up with that so that we sponsor the schools where they make the, it's up in the Andes in Peru. So there's a couple of schools that we sponsor up in the Andes, pay for the teachers and do stuff like that. So that's, that's long been my personal passion. I didn't know that we had school boards in in common as well. I spent six and a half years, uh, two uh, elected terms uh, in a town in uh, Westfield, New Jersey. You talk about thanking me for my service in the military. Thank you for your service <laughs> on the school board because school boards, you talk about that's the lowest level of elected politics and that's where stuff really happens and you can really make a difference. And Yeah, and... I was very pleased to uh, have been able to do that. So um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Uh, flying. I, I'm a pilot, flew for the army. It's like the greatest thing ever. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? Uh, my paratrooper red beret. Okay. And if uh, people want to reach out to you on social media, Bill, what would be the best place? <laughs> I never, I don't have a Facebook account. I don't, I don't want to know what you ate for lunch. I, I'm not going to tell you what I ate for lunch. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's my only, uh, it's my business Rolodex, but yeah, I don't do any of the other social media, which is wild because I've been doing the internet thing for forever, but yeah, I've always steered away from social media. I think you'd be great on TikTok, Bill. <laughs> so anyway, uh, thanks again for doing this. It was nice to uh, see you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Continued uh, success to what you're doing at Full Beauty Brands. I've got a lot of friends there, so I'm glad that it's going well. Great. Thank you, Mark. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Bill Bass for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, generative AI is real. Bill speaks about how Full Beauty Brands is using it to help create subject lines, product copy, and helping to create images. This is a great way to get more content that you can be testing to help improve overall performance within your digital business. And number two, the shiny object syndrome, not a new discussion for the Marketing Playbook podcast, but one worth repeating. It's so easy to be distracted by the new ideas that are out there. Bill spoke about the metaverse as one. It might be interesting, and for some brands, it might make sense, but stay focused on what really matters for your business. Focus on the details, the basic blocking and tackling, and be sure you're bringing your customers great product and an easy shopping experience. And number three, Bill speaks about his kitchen cabinet, that group of people that he's developed over the years. These are the people that you share ideas with, ask questions of, and generally use as a sounding board for challenges that you might be facing. Cultivate a group of people that you trust, and it will serve you well throughout your career. And it's never too early to start. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details.